Hello listeners and welcome. My name is Dark and I'm your host for the Strong Women Strange Worlds podcast, where we highlight stories written by women and other underrepresented gender identity authors of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. My guest tonight is E.C. Ambrose, and she'll be reading from her novel Drake Master. But first, let's have a quick chat with the author. So tell us a little bit about yourself and the genres that you like to write in. I have an interesting work history. I'm an art school dropout. I was a sculpture major for a long time and actually dropped out uh, when I was in Italy um, studying abroad. So I'm glad I went. I'm glad I left. Both times it was the right choice. Uh, And then when I got home for several years, I ran my own business making original design stuffed animals uh, while I was kind of writing on the side. And it was a little bit of a race to see which of those things would take off first. Would, would the business you know, go or would the, the writing? And then I ended up um, selling my first novel and the rest, as they say, is history. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> my, my first published works were traditional fantasy novels, um, you know, kings and princes and some romance, uh, some magic. And the, um, the ones after that were historical fantasy, which is the genre that I'm kind of moving more closer to, I guess, so strongly research-based and then developing my fantastic elements out of an understanding of the culture and the time period that I'm writing into. Uh, I also write archaeological thrillers, uh, which are kind of a fun lark, you know, contemporary settings, no fantastic elements, um, kick-butt heroes doing their thing. (laughs) Those are always the best kind. Oh, yeah. So set up this piece you're going to read for us tonight. So I will be reading from Drake Master. This is my next historical fantasy novel. It is uh, an epic story set in China during the Mongol invasion, um, featuring a deadly race to locate a clockwork doomsday device. Uh, The device is actually based on a historical clock created by a fellow named Su Song, who was a polymath in the employ of the uh, Northern Song Dynasty emperors of China. And he made this amazing astronomical clock that was four stories tall. It could uh, predict all sorts of astronomical phenomena. And it was used to basically tell horoscopes for imperial children. Uh, So I kind of took that idea and I spun it out into something else. So there are five different characters in the book and the one that we're hearing from is uh, Dalis, who was a Lithuanian bellmaker who has been kidnapped and brought into the army. Hi, my name is E.C. Ambrose, and today I'm going to be reading from Drake Master. This is an epic historical fantasy novel set in China during the Mongol invasion. It features a desperate race across medieval China to locate a clockwork doomsday device. Chapter two. Hurry up, barked Wang Linyo, the overseer as Dalis and the other slaves trudged up the narrow path, muddied by the hundred soldiers who had already passed that way. A few bodies, monks and Mongols both, lay on the slope below, dead in the fighting or merely from the fall. Daelus's stomach churned at the great height, but he scanned the area anyhow, looking for any way to escape. The mountainous terrain would mean fewer people, which would work in his favor if he knew anything of how to survive in the wild, but still, if he stopped looking, he might miss the chance when it came. Ahead, the path turned into the mountain, but instead it slid between two peaks shaggy with pines, mist still lurking between them. 
From the mist rose a white wall, pierced by a round gate, topped with a narrow edge of those brown half-loaf tiles the Cathayans preferred. Atop the wall rose the rooftop of a heathen temple, a dizzying pile of square roofs with upswept corners, each embellished with a series of creatures, like the gargoyles on the new cathedral back home, but gilded and gleaming in the early light. The man behind him stumbled into him, and Daelus muttered an apology as he trotted ahead to catch up, cradling his wrist so the added weight of his slave bracelet didn't send him off balance into the chasm that still opened on one side. No escape now, not with so many men around, slaves and soldiers alike. Bloody trails marked the courtyard beyond the arch, and a few soldiers still worked there, pushing the bodies into heaps at either side, the golden robe, yellow robes of the monks streaked with crimson. The Tatars plucked arrows from the corpses as they worked so that nothing would go to waste. Here, Wang Linyo pointed his thick arm toward a smaller building, just below the bulk of the mountain. We need this taken down and broken up. It's too big to carry or drag, not down that path. The crew of 18 men, Dalis included, bowed and turned, wiping mud from their scarred hands and taking up the hammers Wang Linyo had carried up rather than risk any of the slaves having tools of their own. The overseer had been a slave himself before his advancement, and he still seemed to know what they were thinking. Dalis hefted the hammer in both hands, his bracelet wearing a groove into his forearm. A few blows from a hammer like that, and slave bracelets could disappear into the mud, and slaves themselves could disappear into the countryside, lost among the mountains, lost among their countrymen. All except for Dalis. He stood a head taller at least than the others, head and shoulders taller than most, even if his pale skin hadn't marked him for a stranger. The Cathayans, the Tartars said, used the same word for stranger as for ghost, and the Tatars merely pointed to him when they explained, pale as a fish belly, pale as old bones on the steps, pale as a newborn's rump. Then they laughed and laughed, and Yusin, his master, could pretend himself a man for having captured the pale giant and hauling him here. No, even without his bracelet, Daelus stood out far too much to ever hope for freedom merely by running away not here. He would have to look harder for escape, or work harder on behalf of the Khan, as Wang Linyo did, and earn his way to a higher status and less supervision. Carrying his begrudged hammer, Dalis followed the others, unable to avoid the blood that marked the stones, up the steps of the little open structure. At one end, two ropes suspended a thick log, a man's body sprawled beneath it, his head missing somewhere among the loose cloth of his robes. Swallowing bile, Dalis fought the urge to cross himself, gripping his hammer even tighter. Four groups of slender pillars surrounded another peaked square roof, sheltering a bell. Dalis froze, his breath arrested at the sight of it. Tall as a man, half as broad as it was tall, the huge bronze bell hung just a few feet from the ground. Mad heathen figures marked the surface all over, with lines of writing in between and all manner of decorations to frame them, flames and orbs, filigreed bats, and writhing, wingless dragons. The bell. He flashed his glance back to the hanging log. A man standing on those steps could swing that log and strike this extraordinary thing. What might it sound like? He could already feel the shape of the sound moving through him, deep and resonant, echoing in a valley like this one, lingering in the bronze. Wang Linyo's hand smacked the back of Dalis's head. Get on, work, or do you want another pounding, fish belly? Dalis dropped into a quick bow. Get that body out of the way, add it to the stack. The man jabbed his finger at the corpse, then toward the pile of similarly dressed dead in the yard. Then he swung himself about to study the bell. Tang, climb up there and loosen that coupling. Let's break this thing. 
The Khan needs his fire drakes by the time we get to Kaifeng. And just as quickly, the imagined peal of the bell vanished into Daedalus's clenched, always empty stomach. He struck, stuck the handle of the hammer through the back of his belt and moved toward the corpse, ducking beneath the log to wrap his arms around the dead monk's shoulders. The other slaves surrounded the bell, grumbling and gesturing as they tried to figure out how to get up as high as the coupling in question. John Ho, the closest Daedalus had to a friend, stood silent among the rest, as if in mourning for the bell. In a matter of hours, they would have the vast bell broken into shards, ready to haul it away and melt it down, so that the Khan could get his fire drakes. The shadow of the log hung over Daedalus and his burden, and his heart raced. He could do it, as if by accident, slipping in the blood, stumbling and riding himself, exactly as they expected of a great oaf like him. Did he want another pounding? No. His face and stomach still ached from the last one. But to think of the bell dying without once more giving voice? Dalus gathered the dead monk and hauled him upward. A scant few inches too, too far and he backed into the log, leaning into it as if he didn't expect it to move, letting his eyes go wide and then lurching away, slipping down the steps. The crew laughed as he had to drop the monk. He caught hold of the log with his bloody arms, strained for a moment as if to stop it, pulling it back from the bell and pushed as he let go, his bloody hand slipping, flung wide, ridiculous, and then sublime. The log struck hard and the bell rang, a single loud, brilliant note that seized him low in the gut and quivered through his body. His bare feet felt the sound in the stone steps beneath him, every tiny hair of his skin tingling with it. Sorry, 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 he said, in threes, to show he really meant it, as he dropped to his knees and smacked his forehead into the mud at Wang Linyo's feet. The overseer kicked him. Monkey, I thought you could be trusted to drag out the dead without a mistake. Why you never thought to take a lump like you is beyond the sages. He snorted, but Dalus repeated his apologies twice more, and the overseer merely pointed at the body. John Ho caught Dalus's eye with the flash of a smile, as if he knew exactly what had happened. Then both men got back to work. John Ho had been a sculptor before his capture, no doubt admiring the images on the bell just as much as Dalus admired the thing itself. The vast temple bell was still ringing in Dalus's ears, in his entire body, if truth be told, when the Khan arrived. A few captains in their furs and leathers galloped in first, then Monke Khan himself, the horsetail dangling from his peaked helmet the only sign of his Tatar origins. Below that, the Khan was all Cathay silks and brocades that the Holy Roman Emperor himself would envy. A big man, powerfully built, the Khan bestrode his horse as if it were his throne, sword and bow hanging ready at his sides. Dalus dropped his gaze and took up his burden, dragging the headless monk, trusting his hunched posture would allow him to escape notice. Instead of moving on toward the temple, the Khan swung down from his horse and stomped closer. Dalus dropped the corpse and fell once more to his throbbing knees, bowing his head. These aren't geomancers, the Khan shouted. Where's Batsorig? He prodded the body with his foot, smearing a little blood on his fancy boot as someone hurried to fetch the general. Dalus turned over the word geomancers. He thought he had translated it right. Two years gave him a fair grasp of the language of his captors, but the words the Khan used combined the earth and witchcraft or magic. Earth witches? Mud witches? Dalus fell back on Latin, what little he had of it from working at various churches, and settled for geomancers, as something like those who make magic from the earth. Here, my lord, what is your will? Batsorig bowed low and straightened, hands spread, ready for the Khan's command. These are yellow monks, Buddhists. They're not geomancers. Oh, 
Are you certain, my lord? Have you found any compasses or symbols? Betsora glanced around at the bodies, the temple, the soldiers, anywhere but at the Khan. You said they would have sanctuaries high in the mountains, that they would be like monks. Like monks, not be monks. We can't simply go around the countryside slaughtering everyone we find, not if we want to govern this place for ourselves. No wonder Kaifeng is in revolt. The Khan slapped his thighs. Didn't you send your scouts? Only one was available and he seemed... The general shook his head. One scout, the one that nobody employed unless he had to. Dale is his own master. It does not matter. I have failed you. A thousand apologies, my lord. Batsorik bowed his head, shoulders slumping. At least tell me that none have escaped to spread word of this. None, my lord. Again, the general glanced around, his eyes briefly settling on the opposite mountaintop, where another peaked structure could be seen, linked to the temple complex by a long string of steps. Absolutely. Thank the eternal sky for that. Tell your men they may take booty, then put this place to the torch. My lord, look there, so much bronze. That's where I pointed to the huge bell across the yard. Just as the crew succeeded in decoupling it, it fell with a resounding crash against the stones beneath, cracking several, Dalis noted with some satisfaction. Even in death, the bell had power. John Ho cringed back from the damage. A strange man, that one, but it was their strangeness that brought them together, shunned by the other men. Wang Linyo, silent as the Khan berated his general, spoke up at last. With this bronze, Master Sheng can make four or five fire drakes at least, my Lord Khan. The Khan's eyes lit up as if reflecting the glow of his fire drakes. Then his light faded and he gave a sigh. You have not heard. Shang fell from his horse, struck by a dart, or so the shaman says. He's dead, assassinated. We need those fire drakes at Kaifeng, but without a master. He rolled a shrug. How long do you think the city can withstand a siege? If we bring up reinforcements or wait for a new master to cast the fire drakes? Batsorig dropped to one knee and sketched in the mud, a long wriggling line, a few swooping marks, a square. They have the river, my lord. If we could divert it and take their water, we could regain our advantage. If the river were their only water source, and even then it would take months for them to run out, they've been planning this a long time, stockpiling fire lances. If the rebels have friends in the south to send reinforcements of their own, or if they get to the geomancers, we might lose the entire region. The Khan stomped, splashing the foul muck and Dale flinched. Without Shang, the Khan shook his head, the horsetail slapping his shoulders. There must be somebody else who could do it, my lord. Even Wang Linyo seemed at a loss. His brow furrowed, his own position now likely threatened without a drake master to supply. Dalis's heart thundered in his chest, and he spoke a Hail Mary under his breath, his mind working. Shang, the ferocious and brilliant man who ran the entire bronze casting operation, killed. Leaving the army with a lengthy siege instead of a quick and glorious victory powered by fire drakes to belch stone to shatter the walls of their enemy. The Tatars hated to wait. Dalis would have no hide left when Wang Linyo and Yu Sen had taken their fury out over that. What then? Would he ever have the chance to go home? Fire drakes. Great hollows of bronze to contain an explosion instead of a voice. Like bells of fire. Dalis swallowed hard and said, My Lord Khan. He winced even as he spoke, tucking his body even closer to the ground, his hands pressed to the mud. What's that? The Khan glanced about and then finally down. Speak up, slave. Did you dare to address me? Yes, my lord Khan. Dalis tried a sidelong glance. What are you? What is this? At a gesture from the Khan, two of the captains grabbed Dalis's arms and hauled him up. He sagged between them, trying to disguise his height. Wang Linyo bowed repeatedly. Forgive me, my lord. Please, please, please forgive me. Surely there was no intent to disturb your reverend person. 
The Khan thrust out his hand, folding back his overlong silken sleeve and grabbed Daelus's chin, lifting his head to stare into his face. A European? Just a slave, my lord, Wang Lin Yo babbled. He belongs to, Kurda, belongs to Kurdun, that is, uh, to Yusin, your, that is, the overseer, flustered by almost blundering into Yusin's past, into the things they never spoke of, halted his tongue, bowed again, and opened his mouth, but the Khan cut him off with a look, still gripping Dalus's chin with work-hardened fingers. Dalus's jaw ached where the Khan's grip overlaid his earlier beating, but he refused to lower his gaze. Let the Khan see him as strong, capable of what he was about to propose. No wonder it dared speak to me. Europeans have no discipline. And Yusin, well, you could hardly expect him to take a firm hand. The Khan gave a short chuckle, echoed by Batsorig and a few of the men. No, my lord, certainly not. Wang Linyo's voice betrayed his own amusement. Certainly not. But when you are given the charge of him, I expect you to do better. The Khan released Dalus and stepped back from him. Yes, my lord. Wang Linyo spun about almost too fast to see and slammed his foot into Dalus's chest. Gasping for breath, Dalus staggered against the grip of the Tatar captains. He gasped and floundered, but he would not fall. This was his chance, the first he had had in two years to rise above the wretched place he'd been given. A, a bronze caster, my lord, I ca cast bronze. Wang Linyo landed another kick that shot pain through Dalus's chest and sent him tumbling free of the captain's grasp to writhe on the ground. The words over his head came and went on echoes of pain as if the bell's great log had struck his own skull and rang in his bones. A bronze caster? Is this true? So Yusin claimed, it's why I have charge of him, my lord. He is disgusting, but not without knowledge. At first I had to hit him just to get him to shut up. Huddled on the earth, fist pressed against his heart, Dalus wished he had taken those lessons more seriously. His chest radiated pain with every half breath and smothered cough. He had seized the chance, and now he would die for it. Any others? Anyone else you have with knowledge? Then he'll have to do. At least he'll have to try. The Khan chuckled again. Yusin might have finally redeemed himself with this. Beneath the eternal sky, Bedzorik, would you ever have imagined such a thing? No, my lord. The general offered a short laugh of his own. What is your will? Send for Yusin. Tell him to haul his slave down to the plains, to General Munkjar's Tuman. Wang Linyo's crew will follow with more bronze. In the meantime, Yusin and his slave will make us a fire drake worthy of the Khanate. The Khan's grin lit his round face and brightened his eyes, or they'll be shot from one. Thank you. Your writing is so detailed for this piece. I'm curious, did you do a lot of research to get the, the atmosphere and everything and the details correct? <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, so this whole project was actually born from a footnote in a book about the history of clockworks. Um, and there was this one little line down at the bottom of the page that referred to the vermilion pens of the ladies secretarial. Um, and those were the, the women whose job it was to write down the horoscopes that were being uh, generated by this amazing clock. And I, I got intrigued and I sort of fell down the rabbit hole of uh, Chinese technology and got into uh, a series of books that were edited by a guy called um, Needham, and he went to China in the 1920s and 30s and gathered up all kinds of material that became the science and civilization of China. And originally he pitched it to the editors and he said, oh, it's going to be uh, one volume kind of covering some of this material. And I think as of the last count, there are 26 volumes. 
each one dedicated to a particular uh, aspect of the science and civilization of China. Uh, so he gathered an amazing wealth of material, which now we are able to benefit from. Once I kind of had looked at the technical aspects that I wanted to write about, then it was more about finding out about the, the culture and the people and the kinds of characters who would have been involved and would be affected by what was going on. Uh, so I was already a Mongolia buff at that time. So it kind of made sense to look to the Mongol invasions and that uh, amazing cultural clash that was happening. The Mongol society uh, was very multicultural. They obviously were conquering a lot of different kinds of people. And as they did that, anyone who had special skills, they would essentially uh, recruit or perhaps impress them into the Mongol army for their own uses. That must have been very difficult not to go down even farther rabbit holes when you were <laughs> researching this. I think that's one, I mean, research is one of the best things that I like about writing, but you can lose yourself if you're not careful. Did you ever there's, find yourself at that point? There's always another rabbit hole, isn't there? And especially when you're looking at something like uh, the history of China, which China is physically vast. It has this extraordinary depth of culture and history, uh, various waves of um, different you know, invasions, migrations, and all of that, it was kind of overwhelming. So I knew I needed to narrow down and focus um, and find a very particular place and time, one of those sort of nuggets where those things came together in an interesting way. And the solution for me was uh, the city of Kaifeng, which had been the Southern Song Dynasty capital after they moved um, sorry, the Northern Song Dynasty capital, after they moved south uh, during the first waves of invasions, they initially invited the Mongols to help them liberate the north, you know, the northern part of China. Um, and so now we have the Mongol culture kind of sweeping in. And Kaifeng is also uh, the home to a Jewish population, which was also invited by an earlier emperor um, in around the 800s. So sort of all of those things coming together uh, in that very particular place and time. It's like, oh, okay, I don't have to go down too many rabbit holes. I could just go down this one. Uh, and it was a very promising rabbit hole to investigate. Now you said that the Mongols were, Mongolian empire was mm -hmm. multicultural. And you reflect that in your book? Of the five point of view characters, um, three are Chinese, two are Han Chinese and one is minority. Uh, and then there's the Lithuanian character who has been kidnapped into the Mongol army, and then the Mongol uh, captain who seized him. So uh, the Mongols, when they were ruling in China, they tended to rely on local Chinese officials, uh, the mandarins, who were sort of the bureaucrats that were running a lot of things. So they were highly interdependent in that way. You have quite a library of books for readers to choose from. The Singer's Legacy series, Blades End, stories in two anthologies. But which one was more fun to write? Gosh, they're all fun in a different way. Uh, in my intro, I mentioned the archaeological thriller series. And I have to say that for pure enjoyment, that's probably where it's at. Um, my fantasy books tend to skew darker. They tend to have a lot of difficult elements and themes introduced. Um, my Dark Apostle series is about historical medicine. 
during the Middle Ages, so that one goes very dark <laughs> in some ways. <laughs> so, but the Bone Guard books, which are the archaeological thrillers, um, they're contemporary. You know, there's so there's still some some bad stuff that goes down. But the characters are really resourceful. There's a lot of kind of banter and and uh, character development. There's sort of play back and forth. Uh, kicking stuff around and it's just kind of fun to throw them on a page and see what they're going to do. Um, you know, kind of follow them around for a while and, and record their exploits. So, and it's nice to, to have people who have a lot of skills uh, and aren't afraid to use them. All your novels are set roughly in the same era, the late Middle Ages. What is it about this era that draws you to it? It's very dynamic in some ways that I think people don't necessarily think about. Although nowadays you're seeing more interest um, in part because we're just coming out of our own recent plague. Um, and the 14th century in Europe was uh, devastated and highly influenced by the Black Death, of course, uh, what they refer to as the Great Mortality. And it had extraordinary repercussions across the civilization. It wasn't just that a large number of people died and then we had to carry on. It was about the labor movement um, and various different forms of uh, governance that started to come more into play, uh, about the nobility being forced to pay more attention in some different ways. So across the board in different areas, that uh, those kind of cultural dynamics and moments of big change that we don't tend to associate with the period. We think of the Middle Ages as kind of this big lump in which uh, people wore lots of pretty clothes and rode horses um, and there were knights, which sometimes those things were true in some places, um, but not, not everywhere and not all the time. So it was interesting to drill deeper into the specific areas that I've researched and sort of see what was going on and where and how, how it was changing during this period that might otherwise seem monolithic. What's the best thing you like about writing? Apart from research. <laughs> Apart from research. Oh, gosh. Um, I love character change, growth and change. I go into it knowing a little bit about who these people are and then developing extraordinary tests for them. I think that you can't really be a great hero until you have been greatly tested. And so sort of thinking about what their background is, what their personal baggage is as they enter into a situation and then thinking all these horrible thoughts about how I can push all of those buttons. How can I trigger those fears and make them face the worst possible thing for that individual and then see how they grow and change as a result. Okay, let's have some fun. <laughs> vacation or staycation? Vacation. Where would be your ideal vacation? Somewhere I've never been before. Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> because it sounds like you've been a lot of places. I have been a lot of places, including China and Mongolia and India and Nepal. I haven't been to most of Central Europe. I have Lithuanian ancestry, and I'm planning to write a book uh, set in Lithuania during probably the World War II. That'll be a fun research project. And obviously, I've done a bit of Lithuanian research for Drake Master, but I haven't actually been there in person yet. I would love to go to Lithuania and kind of visit the the old country. Just about anywhere that I haven't been, if somebody's like, hey, I got a plane ticket, you want to come? I'd be like, yep, sign me up. Which do you think is worse, dishes or laundry? <laughs> dishes. 
totally dishes because pretty much everything I just throw it all in the washing machine you know Ooh. turn it on and, and there it goes um yeah I'm that person I don't sort squat but dishes like some stuff you can't just won't fit or it'll be really awkward you know giant oh, I'd, I'd make it fit we've yeah. got a dishwasher I'd make it fit <laughs> if I don't have to wash it I don't wash it sunrise or sunset oh either sunrise I think sunrise is the answer but I am quite fond of the color variations at, at both ends of the day. I'm also a weaver and fiber artist. So those colors recur in a lot of my work. All right. Well, thank you again so very much. I love talking with you. Thank you, Dark. It was a good chat and I will look forward to, uh, to hearing more. You have a good evening. You as well. Bye-bye. Take care. The Mongol Empire, clockwork technology, ancient cultures. What's not to love about Elaine's book? Her time spent researching for the project is felt in her prose, and she makes you feel like you're really there. This is definitely a story for fans of historical fiction. Thank you listeners for joining me tonight, and be sure to check out our website at www.strongwomenstrangeworlds.weebly.com for more strong women and other underrepresented gender identity authors. Good night.